This is the Monday, January 18th, 2016 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. You can also catch us on iTunes, Spreaker, Player FM, and many other personal audio outlets. You can also tune us in on many new model car stereos where you can listen to iHeartRadio just like you listen to any other radio, right there in the dashboard. Of course, today, we're not driving in a car, but a time machine. And we're heading back to South America's turbulent past to meet some colorful characters present at key moments of its history. They include Pablo Escobar, Butch Cassidy, Sundance, Charles Darwin, and a 14-year-old girl, Juanita, who the Incas sacrificed atop a 20,000-foot volcano. Our tour guide on this journey is author and filmmaker Kim McQuarrie, and his latest book is Life and Death in the Andes, On the Trail of Bandits, Heroes, and Revolutionaries. You can follow him at Kim McHugh on Twitter and learn more about his work at KimMcQuarrie.com. That last name is M-A-C-Q-U-A. R-R-I-E. Okay, now that we've set the scene, let's head on down south of the border and experience life and death in the Andes. I'm joined on the line by Kim McQuarrie, author of Life and Death in the Andes, On the Trail of Bandits, Heroes, and Revolutionaries. Thank you so much for making the time to talk with the History Author Show today. Thanks for having me. The distance from Miami to Seattle, it's 3,000 miles, and you traveled an incredible 4,300 miles in the Andes Mountains. It's really a staggering distance. It's just such a huge number that I wanted to kind of start small. What was a typical day of transit like while writing Life and Death in the Andes? There's two types of travel, because I was writing a book, and so I did the normal kind of travel, and I used every conveyance from buses and trains and boats and weed rafts and that kind of thing to go from one point to the other. The only difference being that I kept notes all along the way because I was working on a book and I found that over time that, you know, if you travel and you later write down your impressions of your travel, the further you get away from that travel, the vaguer it gets because you lose that in your memory. So from a writing standpoint, if you're jotting down notes as you see things, that's the freshest way to, to record that kind of thing. But then I would arrive in places of historical interest, I was interested in in pursuing a story, and I would set up base there, and then I would become no longer a traveler in a way, I'd become an investigative kind of reporter, detective, trying to find clues about stories that happened in the past and trying to find something in the present day. So I would arrive in a small Bolivian town, say, for example, where Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid had their shootout, and I put on my detective cap and start asking people questions and uh, trying to track down people I'd heard about. In that case, I found a, a fellow who, whose father had been a, a young boy when they the, had their, their final shootout. But, so there's kind of two types of travel, traveling from point A to point B, and then investigative travel in these areas where I was trying to find clues for, modern-day clues for things that happened in the past. 
it seems like a lot of things were serendipity too. You meet some amazing characters that still have even family connections recently and living memory to some of these amazing things that happened there. You seem like you're a laid back person, but as a writer, you had to be excited when you meet some of these people. Yeah, I mean, I kind of knew the stories I wanted to pursue before I went down there, so I did a lot of reading, a lot of background reading, so I knew, you know, the basic story. But what I was trying to do is to go to those areas so I could describe as freshly as possible what those areas are like today and also to find living links to those stories in the past. So, But that was the part that was required more detective work or it required a lot of asking one person and they would connect me to another person. You never really knew kind of where the story would lead or if you'd find the people that you hope to lead or you might find somebody even more interesting. That was kind of an interesting way and I would investigate that story until I felt that I had all of the parts that I needed to tell the story and then at that point I'd keep heading further south until I get to the next area. And talk a little bit about Edgar Rice Burroughs. He inspired you here to work that eventually led you here to this current book, Life and Death in the Andes. Yeah, well, you know, people ask me, well, so what, for example, I, you know, I worked as an anthropologist for a while down in the Peruvian rainforest, and I ended up living for a while with a recently contacted tribe. It was only later that talking to people or being interviewed that I put together that people say, well, what made you go down there? And when I really thought about it, I said, well, I grew up in, in Nevada, and uh, I read a lot as a kid. I read a tremendous amount in both fiction and nonfiction. And that kind of led me later to saying, you know, by the time I was 10, I'd really traveled extensively, even though I'd never traveled at all. You know, I'd gone to the inside of the planet, I traveled to the moon, I crossed oceans, all because of reading. That's the power of books. And one of the series, one of the, you know, certain books really pop out in your mind and stick with you. And one of the series I really liked was a, written by Edgar Rice Burroughs, who was not only famous for the Tarzan series, but he wrote a series of seven books called the Hollow Earth series. And that series is about a scientist who drills down through the Earth's crust and he finds a whole world inside called Pellucidar. And that world is full of, it was a jungle and had half-naked tribes and dinosaurs and mastodons and all kinds of wild stuff. And even though I lived in the Mojave Desert as a kid, I spent a lot of time in the summers reading about Pellucidar. So I was, almost felt like I was there. And I think those kinds of books really impact you. And I know those kinds of books, both fiction and nonfiction, really inspired me to, to want to explore the rest of the planet, you know, but in reality, not just by reading. One of the people you meet, I was mentioning the living links that you pass through here, or I guess make contact with in Life and Death in the Andes. It's a school teacher who gave Che Guevara his last meal. Share a little bit about how you came to meet that person. Yeah, well, you know, I knew the basic outlines of what happened to Che and what villages he was in and you know, where he had battles and that kind of stuff. So I was interested in finding the village where he was he was captured in the final ambush site, and I was interested in finding that ambush site. And then he was, when he was captured, he was taken to a very small town called La Higuera in the middle of the Bolivian Andes, a tiny little village, and it probably hasn't changed much since the day when he was captured in, in 1967. He was thrown into one of the few places they had to throw him, which was a small one-room schoolhouse, you know, Adobe schoolhouse. And... There was just a single teacher at the time. She was 19 years old. And I found out about her actually while I was traveling. I was in another Bolivian town, and there was this tiny library. And this Bolivian town was not much larger than a small room with these two old ladies, and they had these files. And I told them what I was doing. I was looking at Che Guevara, and this one woman goes, oh, we have a file on that. And so she brought out this folder, and they had all these Xeroxed articles they'd collected over the years. And one of them was a, from a local paper, and it mentioned this school teacher who had been there the final day of Che's life and had fed him and conversed with him. And they thought that she might still be alive. And so that kind of gave me a clue about this woman. And I started asking around and I eventually tracked her down to a nearby town. And sure enough, she was still alive. And she was one of the final people that Che Guevara spoke to. She'd fed him, given his final meal. 
and that meeting with him in the last day of his life has really impacted her life for the rest of her life, both for better and for worse. You write a lot about the violence in South America over the years and trace the roots really back to the Spanish conquest and the colonial period. Draw a line, if you could, between men like Cortez and Pablo Escobar, the biggest criminal, of course, in the world that is drug empire Zenith. I never really thought of them together before until I read Life and Death in the Andes. Yeah, you know, I'm not making the case that violence is something that just was brought over by the Spaniards in the New World because I live with this, this recently contacted tribe and prior to my arrival, they used to attack other tribes all the time and warfare among tribes, the Amazon was pan-endemic and the Incas had been big conquistadors and they did some of that peacefully, but they also, when a tribe or a group did not want to submit peacefully, they waged war against them. So it's not like a warfare came with the Spaniards. The line between the first conquistadors and people like Pablo Escobar and some of the later violence, in, in my opinion, is that when the Spaniards came, they were interested in gold and extracting wealth, and they were not interested in native cultures. And in a case like Colombia, for example, which is where Pablo Escobar emerged from, the first conquistadors arrived like in 1537, and they were tracking down stories of gold. So they would capture native chiefs, and they would torture them and try to say, where is the gold? Where is the gold? And one of the chiefs was named Chief Bogota, which is where the city, the capital of Colombia, the name comes from. They captured him, tortured him, and that was the only thing they were interested in. And once they conquered these areas, like the Inca Empire, in the case of Colombia, they had the Muisca Federation, or the Federation of Tribes. They ruled them, but in such a manner that they extracted all the wealth of Spaniards, kind of like at the top of the social pyramid, and they put all the, the indigenous people down at the bottom of that social pyramid. So they introduced extreme inequality, not just in South America, but all through Latin America. And in my opinion, that extreme inequality that they introduced 500 years ago persisted for centuries and that is the cause of a lot of violence and a lot of the revolutions that emerged later is trying to equalize or try to get rid of that disparity and it's still ongoing today. And that leads into my next question, which is about Charles Darwin. You mentioned growing up in Nevada, you were born there, yes, and yet you steeped yourself really in the culture of South America that you're talking about rather than coming like the colonists and just sort of looking down at them and imposing your view on them. This is something that Charles Darwin really didn't do. He missed an opportunity there is the feeling I got. How did his perception impact his research, for instance, when he precedes you to the Galapagos Islands where you visit? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, different cultures see the world differently. And I think that, you know, we, our natural assumption is that we, when we look at something, we are seeing reality because we're so used to looking through our own culture. But really, different cultures wear different glasses. And each of those glasses are like a prescription glass. And every culture has a completely different kind of set of glasses. And you get so used to glasses, you think, oh, everybody's wearing these same glasses, but they're not. So when Charles Darwin arrived in, in South America for the first time, he was wearing a set of Victorian glasses, metaphorically. You know, he came from the Victorian world. He had trained to be a pastor in the Anglican church. He kind of got this job going around the world just as a last minute kind of offer, but he was planning on spending his life in the church, in the Anglican church, being a pastor. So when he arrived in South America and started finding remains of ancient dinosaurs and extinct animals, you know, the set of glasses he was wearing was the biblical creation of the world. And so that prevented him for a long time from seeing reality that today we think of without even thinking twice, that he saw evidence that he sometimes discarded or, or repressed or filed away because he really, in a way, couldn't see it. And one of the quotes I have at the beginning of the chapter is by the writer Eugene Tarman, and he has a great quote, says, 
what you see depends on what you thought before you looked. And that is very true. He was looking, but he was looking through his own cultural perception. And therefore, what he saw was kind of like the belief system he brought with him. And, and the whole creation or the discovery of evolution came about by him slowly dismantling his previous beliefs and allowing his mind to accept new evidence without the culture he came with. A little bit of the entire reason we say the word Indians, because of course, when they came, they expected to be an Indian. It's not as if no Englishmen or Spaniards or anybody European had been to India. It, you arrive there with people who you thought were going to be your interpreters and speak Hindi or what have you. And these clearly are not Indian people from the subcontinent. And yet, the name sticks because that's where I expected I was going to be. So this must the you must be Indians because that's where I think I am. So it's sort of like that. Huh? It's a hundred percent like that. Yeah, Columbus went to his death believing he had found a new route to India. He made five voyages there, and every time because he was so convinced about what the world what lay beyond the Atlantic Ocean that that had to be India on the other side. That even though he was looking at an entirely new world, his mind would not accept that. He was so set. In his dying day, he thought he had discovered a new route to India. That's a very good example of that. And Darwin arrived with his own set of beliefs, and he too had a very fixed worldview. And that worldview prevents you sometimes, like it did Columbus, from seeing reality. I was struck by how many everyday people, I guess, for lack of a better word, and tourists from other places in the world that you talk to throughout Life and Death in the Andes. There was one, for instance, or there was a few on that ferry that you take to the Galapagos. And I wondered, how do you go about approaching somebody with a story to tell and get them to open up? Or do people volunteer to you as soon as you tell them you're writing a book? Yeah, well, you know, when you travel, you inevitably meet a lot of people, which is part of the fun of traveling, right? So that's kind of happens. But when I was investigating a particular story in a particular area, then it takes on a different kind of slant because I was obviously looking for people that might be connected to a story. But sometimes you randomly... In the Galapagos, you're on a, you know, in this case, is on a boat for eight days with a group of people, and I was investigating Darwin's experience in the Galapagos Island, but it just so happened there was this American family on the boat that were did not believe in evolution. So it's kind of like a little, a little light goes off. Hmm, they could be very interesting part of the story, and I conversed with them quite a bit, and we had a lot of discussions about evolution or the lack of evolution and that kind of thing. So sometimes, or in Bolivia, for example, you know, I was on the way to try to find Che Guevara's ambush site, and I ran across an Argentine girl who was going to the same place. It was a very remote site, so it was very strange that somebody else would be going there. It turned out she was kind of making a pilgrimage to the site because she was from Argentina, like Che Guevara, and she told me that a lot of young people in, in Argentina still admire Che Guevara and him being Argentine, that kind of thing. So sometimes just meeting people that are visiting the areas that you're, the story took place might have a link to them themselves or a different point of view or you know, illuminate an aspect of that. So if it was an interesting side of the story that they revealed, then I, I put them in the book. My guest is Kim McQuarrie, an accomplished historical storyteller. As you can tell, I have to say, I looked at my timer there and I was surprised at how much I'd just been sucked down to South America just by talking about it here. That usually doesn't happen. I'm usually keenly aware of it. He has won four Emmys for his documentary filmmaking. His book that we're talking about today is Life and Death in the Andes on the Trail of Bandits, Heroes, and Revolutionaries. The Twitter handle you'll want to follow is Kim McHugh, and his website is kimmacquarie.com. The New York Times Sunday Book Review said that Kim McQuarrie, quote, writes smartly and engagingly and with enthusiasm about the variety of South America's life and landscape. 
I wanted to talk about the landscape a little because I think we tend to sort of lump South America together when we think of it, because at least in America, we only get so many views of it. You visit, as I said, 4,300 miles. It's just incredible to me. What do you find are the most exciting parts of life and death in the Andes for people who may not realize that variety, who may not have seen it, have never set foot south of the equator, and they realize just how much struggle and drama went on in drawing the borders of South America? Well, you know, if you had you know, borders around the world, the political borders are always changing. Uh, you know, I think it'd be interesting if you ever set up the cameras, you had time lapse of the political map of any part of the world, and you let that roll, the borders would be like just moving all the time. And most of those movements of the borders represent some kind of conflict, conquest or political upheaval or the dissolution of empires and the founding of empires. And South America is no different. In the present day of South America, when the Europeans arrived, none of the present countries were there. Those were all created after the arrival of the Europeans. But you did have a multitude of native cultures with their own territories, and you had states and empires, like the Inca Empire, which stretched for 3,000 miles. One of the interesting things, like when Cort Hernando Cortez conquered the Aztecs, he went back to talk to the king of Spain and explain what Mexico was like in the Aztec Empire. And the, the king asked a question, says, what, is, what does Mexico look like? And Cortez famously took a piece of paper and crumpled it up and threw it on the table and said, that is Mexico. And he meant that's how the mountains of Mexico, and that's what the topography looked like. But the Andes, by comparison, would make, you'd have to crumple up a giant cardboard box and put that next to the table, you know, next to the small piece of paper that he crumpled up to describe the Andes, because the geography is so fantastically contorted. You know, there's a ton of mountains that are over 20,000 feet high. You know, the Andean chain is twice as long as the Himalayas. So it's almost difficult to describe how contorted and, and what an epic kind of landscape it is. And the thought that like an Inca empire could put an empire 3,000 miles across that fantastically contorted landscape is like mind-boggling. And it's still a today, and that's why people go down there to visit that. One American influence on that map that pops into my head, I'd love to tell the story of Rutherford B. Hayes and of him helping to settle the border there. And it probably took him two seconds. And yet he's remembered there's a town named after him. It's Paraguay. So much went on down there. So much goes on that you never even thought of. And certainly for me, I didn't. I, I didn't have any idea other than that little bit of Rutherford B. Hayes, almost trivia for us, although it's very important to them and the people that live there. There's a soccer team named after him. And so uh, for helping to settle this border dispute, you mentioned something that maybe we do know more about. We're talking about the native people of South America. You mentioned this girl, Juanita, being sacrificed at the top of a volcano. and how do people feel about their ancestors having done these things that, of course, today we recoil at, knocking a young girl over the head there and leaving her at the top of a mountain? Did you ever have to abandon a topic just because people were really reluctant and tight-lipped and didn't want to discuss it? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, um, obviously they don't do that anymore. <laughs> Humans are not sacrificed <laughs> anymore there. But if you look back at almost any, well, not any culture, but a lot of cultures around the world, if you go back far enough, there's tales of human sacrifice, including like a, the biblical story of Abraham, you know, all on the point of sacrificing Jacob in the Bible, and, and God came down and stopped him from doing that. But a lot of people think that is a an example of sacrifice that happened in the Middle East back in the day. And so, you know, we're talking about the Inca Empire 500 years ago, so things have changed a lot, just like 500 years ago in the medieval times in, in Europe. But the interesting thing is that there's so many connections, and South America is so interesting in, on so many levels, that one of the levels that's interesting is that there's so many different, in a sense, like time warps. For example, you can be 
in the middle, in a remote part of the Andes, and you know, a village that where people are still speaking the Quechua language that the Incas spoke, and they're still wearing traditional clothing that you know you would think that you were back in the time of the Incas. And then you can travel maybe a hundred miles, and the next thing you're in a cosmopolitan city in a fine restaurant, you know, doing something on your iPad. There's like different time zones, little nooks and crannies. And if you go to over the eastern edge of the Amazon or eastern edge of the Andes, you're down in the Amazon jungle, which are still like uncontacted Indian tribes. So there's all these different worlds juxtaposed. But getting back to the sacrifices, many Andean people still have this really strong connection to the Andes anthropologists refer to as like the sacred landscape. That they still believe there's spirits in the mountains. They still believe that there's a relationship between what they're doing and the spirits of the earth and the sky and lightning and that kind of thing. And there's a very famous pilgrimage site just outside of Lima, Peru, on the coast. People have been going there for thousands of years and leaving offerings there, and these huge adobe pyramids. And when the Incas arrived there, they kind of put on their own little stone temple next to it, but they partly incorporated their pantheon. But I was there, and there was a car that pulled up in the distance, and these two people got out, and they buried something in the ground, and it took off. And I realized that they're still leaving offerings to this day at this very, very ancient site. And they're still doing that all over the Andes. So that doesn't explain away human sacrifice, but that relationship of having to appease the gods, of having to be in harmony with the gods, that there's a whole spiritual world that you have to be attuned with still exists in the Andes. And the apogee of that 500 years ago, when things were really bad, there was calamity and volcanoes and erupting that kind of thing, the Incas and other pre-Andean people thought you had to have sacrificed possibly a human to try to placate the gods. And she was there at the top of that volcano for 500 years. And you feel a connection to a person like that when you do look back, not that you want to condescend, because I'm sure there's things we do today that they'll find in 500 years they're scratching their heads at. But that was an amazing and a very personal story. You wrote it almost like a novel, which I mentioned when we were emailing back and forth. It really is some feeling to be in the body and experience it almost through the book, as you said, reading all those books when you were a young person, to feel like you're a person that's there up at the top of the mountain being sacrificed. Yeah, well, one reason I spent time in that chapter trying to explore that human sacrifice is for most people it's not understandable why anybody would sacrifice you know, a child on top of a mountaintop. Or you know, I tried to build the background and show from the from their point of view, the Incas' point of view, and even from this young girl's point of view, what that was like for them, what the world was they were coming from. So hopefully by the end you get to the chapter, you understand why that person was sacrificed as crazy as it seems in modern terms that in a sense makes a lot of sense because they were dealing with these titanic forces of nature that they were trying to control and they didn't know how to do it any other way than give the best sacrifice or the highest sacrifice they could possibly offer to the gods that controlled nature. Well, as you said earlier, we can't wear our modern glasses because we don't understand the values and they couldn't wear ours. Certainly, if they came today, I'm sure they would find many things impossible to understand and to relate to. And that's something you do do really well, I think, in Life and Death in the Andes. You make us feel like we're there and you do take a minute to explain it instead of just, or illustrate it, I guess is a better word, instead of just blowing straight past it. So I, I did particularly enjoy that. It was really like traveling back in time. Another thing you mentioned, you retraced Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids Escape. Did they color the way that we in North America view South America sort of as this lawless place with fake names and people on the run with a past that's chasing them, that kind of thing? That still kind of lingers today, that perception. Yeah, that's very true. And, you know, South America, you know, one of the things South America had, even in the time of Bush and Sundance, you know, Bush and Sundance, you know, lived in the late 
19th century in America, as the frontier was changing, and civilization is in a sense catching up with them in their in their outlaw careers, and the telegraphs are being put in, the law enforcement was, incre- was increasing. So one of the reasons they left North America is when they had bounties on their heads, and they're pretty well known, but they were trying to escape, in a sense, the the loss of the American West and trying to find some other frontier somewhere else. And they went down to South America and tried to remake their lives. They went down to Patagonia and Argentina and tried to homestead and become ranchers down there and escape their pasts. But they were also trying to find a frontier because frontier still existed down there, although it caught up with them eventually down there as well. So South America has always had this frontier and kind of notion that bandits and that kind of thing could go down there and escape the reach of the law. But the other thing is that I think the perception that people have of you know, Latin America being unstable and having bandits and that kind of thing is that this instability I mentioned before that the conquistadors introduced, there's been really in a way, if you summarize Latin American history, it's been 500 years of trying to address that huge disparity of wealth that the conquistadors created when they conquered all these different civilizations down there in cultures. And Bolivia, for example, I, I forget what stretch, but Bolivia during a period of their history had like 90 different governments in 90 years. Oh, wow. And so people in North America go, what on earth is going on? But again, it's kind of like all those revolutions that emerge there. It's almost like, you know, earthquakes happen because there's all these tectonic forces that are building in the crust. And then an earthquake or a volcano will release those forces. In a sense, these revolutions and things are like trying to release that tension that was introduced from the conquest. So I think people hear about that a lot, like, why aren't all these governments, you know, we haven't had a revolutionary war in the United States since the only revolutionary war we had against England, but they've had quite a few down there in revolutionary movements. So the Andes was built from tectonic forces, and a lot of the instability down in South America was created from the conquest, in my opinion, the conquest of these native cultures. Just to give us a round idea, one last thing there on Butch and Sundance, what do you think it would cost for that old man in Tupiza, is that the town, to show someone where they were buried? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, well, let's see, you're referring to, I went to this town to try to, I was interested in like where Butch and Sundance held up, you know, had their last hold up. They held up a mining payroll, stole about $100,000 out in the middle of nowhere. And I found that spot where they had hidden and, and had their hold up. And then I went to the nearby town and I was trying to find, I'd heard about an old man whose father had been in the same town where Butch and Sundance had their shootout with uh, the Bolivian police and where they died. And it was very difficult to find him. For example, you know, you get into these really rural areas, there's not like even street signs. And so you, somebody's not going to give you an address. They'll say, yeah, well, there's a house up on the, you know, in this, towards the hill. And it's a blue house with a red door. And I think there's somebody over there. And so you go try to find somebody could find a red house with a blue door. And I finally tracked down this guy. It quickly becomes apparent that Bush Cassidy Sundance Kid, they're real outlaws, real human beings. But... Now there's been a movie made about them, and they, they become myths. It's like Pablo Escobar's a myth, and, and these outlaws become myths. And the one reason they're in my book is because those myths sell, and it's such a fascinating story. And this old fellow, I sat down with him and said, so I understand your father was uh, you know, a young boy living there. And he said, how much will you pay me <laughs> to tell the story? And so I, I negotiated. I tried to negotiate with him, and I forget, I offered him. You know, X amount, and he wanted like 10 times more than that. And I spent like, you know, five minutes trying to negotiate. I finally agreed to the original price that he had made. So he's selling those myths too. And um, 
those myths are fascinating. So the, these stories now are kind of like a combination of what really happened and all that kind of myth-like stature these stories of bandits and outlaws have taken over time. I guess it's part of the tourism almost, and I just like that. He seemed like he was going to cash in on what he knew, and the, the thing about the burial was just funny that he showed somebody the wrong way because they wouldn't pay. So I was just thinking, I wonder why. I wonder exactly what. <laughs> I wonder if anyone does pay him. And he, I, I don't know. I guess he would have to swear them to secrecy. But there are lots of great yeah. stories like that in there. The FX channel is developing your earlier book, The Last Days of the Incas, into a 13-part TV series called Conquistadors. Since you work in film, as we mentioned, for Emmys, is the experience of having your book adapted harder or easier than other authors? Yeah, well, my experience, I mean, I've always known that I've, The Last Days of the Incas, basically, in a nutshell, is about how did 168 Spanish conquistadors conquer an empire of 10 million, the Inca Empire? I mean, how on earth did such a small group conquer such a gigantic empire. How did they do it? And that's what the, the nutshell of that story is. And, you know, there's two big, huge, epic stories that have happened in the New World. And one is the conquest of the Aztecs by Cortes. The other one is the conquest of the Incas by this group of Spaniards. And they're just like immense. It's like so the backdrop is the Andes Mountains. The empire's 3,000 miles long. The closest equivalent to that would be if you sent astronauts to Mars and they were stranded there and they found an empire and they had no communication back with Earth and they were, their instructions were to conquer that Martian empire somehow that was vastly greater than theirs with no contact with you know, anybody could help them out. You'd have to do something like that to approach what happened with the, the conquest of the Inca Empire. So I've always realized that this is an epic, epic story. That's why I wrote the book, but I was always surprised that it never made it to the screen. It's never been done by Hollywood. It's never had a film series on it. And when FX actually bought the rights to the book a few years ago, it's in, been in development to make a 13-part series. I was really gratified. So you, the question is, how do I feel about being an author? I'm just gratified that finally, hopefully, it'll come to the screen because it is such an epic story that most people do not know about. And if they knew about it, they'd be blown away. And so it should be a spectacular event, in this case, in television. Yeah, I'm certainly going to look forward to it. It sounds incredible that it hasn't been made before. One story, though, of South America, one great adventure that our listeners may be familiar with is Theodore Roosevelt's trip down Brazil's River of Doubt, now the Rio Roosevelt, named for him. His partner in the expedition was Candido Rondon, and I mentioned to you that if I want to talk about Rondon, it's basically you or Tweed Roosevelt, the only ones that really talk much about this amazing expedition, at least up around where I am in New York City. You lived with an uncontacted tribe, and I wonder if if you found yourself thinking at all about Rondon's incredible methods, for instance, he would tell his men, lay down your life, die if you must, but never kill, and this kind of thing, and he would leave gifts along the way and really save Theodore Roosevelt from quite possibly being dinner when he was going up there on the River of Doubt. Yeah, Rondon was a, you know, obviously an amazing character. He was an explorer, a colonel, he had all kinds of experience leading these really difficult expeditions through very, very remote parts of the Amazon with all kinds of uncontacted tribes and living to tell the tale. And Roosevelt, after his second term, he was looking for some kind of adventure and got in contact and he went on one of these mind-boggling, difficult expeditions with Rondon to try to find the source of this unknown river and then go down the river and try to explore it. And that's what was still possible in the late 19th century in the Amazon. And so he did that. Roosevelt did that with Rondon. And Roosevelt was terribly sick. Most people on the expedition were terribly sick, except for Rondon, <laughs> this explorer. He was all healthy the whole time. So he's almost immune to that kind of thing. But the interesting thing about that story, 
you know, I went down in the, in the late 1980s and I didn't live with an uncontacted tribe. I lived with a recently contacted tribe who'd been contacted like two years prior to that. But there's still like about 50 uncontacted tribes in the Amazon, way up in the western part of the Amazon, the border of Peru and Brazil. And interesting thing about that whole story is that when Columbus came, we mentioned Columbus before, 1492, and thought he found India, well, his contact with the very first Native Americans started to kind of a shockwave through the Americas. Two worlds colliding, disease was introduced, and all the things, the kind of nasty things that come with contact began with those first visits to Columbus. And through time, it set up like a, a set of ripples that started rippling westward across South America. And the four parts of those waves were the newest contact. So when Roosevelt went down there in, in the uh, early 1900s, you know, the frontier of the Amazon was like in this area where they explored this river. Well, that's all settled now. In fact, it's being chopped down, unfortunately. That's a whole state in Brazil called Rondonia after this explorer, Rondonia. When I went down, it was much further. The frontier of all these uncontacted people was much further west, you know, the furthest uppermost parts of the Amazon. That's where the last uncontacted tribes now. So I guess the irony is that that same story that Rondon and Roosevelt were, were involved in was the same story of Columbus arriving in a new world. And those last uncontacted tribes are the final people in a sense who will learn about the fact that a guy named Columbus arrived in a new world, that this whole exotic culture is now in the new world and you better watch out because when those contacts come the same history unfortunately unfolds they still get sick they still die they still get incorporated into this strange society that they don't understand and Rondon and Columbus in my own experience are all linked in that way we're all connected to the same story well like Rondon you had a much more uh, affection and respect for these tribes one of the things that makes that story so fascinating, there's Candace Miller's book, The River of Doubt, about Theodore Roosevelt. There's, of course, his own recounting of this trip that he made. It's something that the two of them get along so well, especially since there are two men who don't. Um, Roosevelt doesn't speak any Portuguese, and they have a hard time, I guess, communicating a little bit, and yet they really become fast friends. And so that's a lot of fun, and it's nice to have a state named after him. I hope that they can get a handle there on deforestation. For my last question, I want to ask you about your last chapter, which is titled, of course, The Last of the Yamana. Did I get that pronunciation right on that? Uh, Yamana. <laughs> Yamana. Okay, now I'll learn something else. The Last of the Yamana. Had I not picked up Life and Death of the Andes, I certainly would never have learned those people ever existed and are sharing the same planet as me. And not just them, but so many people in your book. And I wanted to ask how you hope readers will find themselves enriched after they take this journey with you. What, what do you hope when they put that book on the shelf for the last time and they finished it, they take away for the rest of their journey in life? Yeah, well, one way of looking at this whole area of South America and South American generals is that when the Europeans arrived, if you picture South America, it's like this big quilt work, this fantastically rich quilt work. And every one of the little squares is different cultures with different languages and some with empires and temples and things like that. And then over that, you overlay European civilization. And there's many parts where the quilt work is still there, very fresh, and there's parts where it's been overlain by European and Western civilization. But it's a fantastically rich mixture of cultures and geography and history that, you know, it's almost, it's almost hard to believe that it even exists. So, you know, the best next thing to traveling is reading a book about travel. And this book is um, part history, part travel. You know, I was being interviewed by this one person and he introduced me and said, yeah, this is Kim McCoury, author of 
Las Days of Incas, which is a kind of best hits of South America. And I, I thought that was kind of funny, but in a sense it is. You know, I've tried to give the reader some of the most interesting stories and allow the reader to follow along in this immense voyage across this immense continent, across this epic landscape, and introduce the reader to some of these amazing histories and some of these amazing cultures. So I would hope that the book would both inspire people to read more about South America and also very much hope that it would inspire them to visit South America if they hadn't been there before because it's such a fascinating place and it still has one of the last frontiers on the planet. Well, Kim McQuarrie, thank you so much for stuffing us in your saddlebag, I guess, or however it is that you traveled. I, I still can't get over 4,300 miles. That's a lot of travel, and we can follow you here just by picking up the book. And it's a journey really like no other. I, I honestly say it's really a whole other world. And thank you for painting it for us, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and the audience about it today. Oh, thanks very much, Gene, for having me on the show. really appreciate it. Again, the book is Life and Death in the Andes, on the trail of bandits, heroes, and revolutionaries. As always, and appropriately for today's subject, you can find the Amazon link, get it, to purchase the book at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Amazon.com gives us a few Bolivian Bolivianos every time you do. And while you're at it, if you like, you can bookmark our Amazon link. And that way, every time you make a purchase through Amazon, we get a little taste. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it's a great way to support the authors and this show so we can keep bringing you great authors and great books every week. Once again, thanks to Kim McQuarrie for taking the time to join us and give us a little sample of this 4,300-mile journey down the spine of South America. You can tag along in his future trips from the comfort of Twitter at Kim McHugh or from your computer at KimMcQuarrie.com. Again, that name is M-A-C-Q-U-A. R-R-I-E. Let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean or at Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor. I hope you join us next week for another trip into the past here on iHeartRadio or wherever you're listening. And remember, if you do subscribe to us on iTunes, please leave a review. It just takes a few seconds. Well, that's it for this week's South American installment of the History Author Show. So until next Monday morning, thanks so much for listening. And happy reading. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.